Now, I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of Psalms as we continue our series of messages on the attributes of God and how awesome God is. Psalm 34, and we want to pick it up here at verse 8. And by the way, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open today because we're not just going to stick with this passage. We're going to go to several other passages of Scripture that help us to understand the, the breadth and the depth of the goodness of God. So uh, have a pencil in hand. You may want to take some notes. Uh, but then also keep your Bibles open because uh, we're going to be looking at several other passages as well. But right now I want us to focus on Psalm 34 beginning at verse 8, and we will read through verse 14. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? <clears throat> Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. That ought to cause you to shout, Hallelujah! Oh, there you go. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do what? Do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Holy Spirit. We love you. You dwell within us as your people. And I pray that you would help us to understand something of the magnitude, the greatness, the absolute awesomeness of your goodness. Daily we are recipients of the goodness of God. And so many times, if we're not careful, we can take that goodness for granted and not respond to your goodness as you've called us to in your word. So, Lord, speak to me and to each one of us today. Help us, Lord, to relish and rest in the goodness of our great God, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There is a world of difference between human goodness and God's goodness. A human goodness is a relative term that in reality has lost its meaning. It's lost its significance. For example, when we look at our kids and we say they are good kids, we are thankful that they are seen and not heard. When we enjoy an incredible meal and we push ourselves away from the table and our stomachs are full and we say it's a good meal, even though probably we've overeaten and need to ask the Lord for forgiveness, we say it's a good meal. We talk about having a good day and a bad day. Sportscasters talk about guys that are having a good game and a bad game. Goodness is something that we kind of throw around with. In fact, we can say to each other, probably some of you said it this morning, 
you look good. You're in your Sunday best. Goodness, it's something that's very relative. It changes based on the circumstances and the places in which we find ourselves. In fact, in today's culture, if you're bad, you're good. That's a bad dude. Oh, that's a good guy. You know, we, 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 we use these terms many times and we fail to understand that, that goodness is something that is literally the very essence of who God is. I'm reminded of the little girl who prayed this prayer, Oh Lord, make all the bad people good and all the good people nice. And unlike our human concept of goodness, God's goodness is not something that comes and goes. It's not based on our feelings or the environment in which we find ourselves. His goodness is unchanging and absolute. It doesn't fluctuate with the circumstances of life. God's goodness is forever because he is the eternal I am. I am. I am God. There's no one besides me. He is a God of goodness. And God's goodness and loving kindness is constant. He's not more kind or less kind to us as his followers. He's always kind. His goodness is infinite. It's perfect. And such goodness is the foundation of all right thinking about God. If we do not understand who God is at the very essence of his character, then we will not have proper thoughts about him. If we're going to understand the greatness of God, we must come to uh, this settled conviction that God is completely in a class all by himself. And his goodness so far exceeds anything we can describe in this life. And behind all his mighty acts, everything that he does for us, many times we're not even aware of, is the undiminished and unmerited goodness of God. A.W. Tozer describes God's goodness this way. He says, the goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind and cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. And when you really stop and think about it, God's goodness is his compassionate relating to his creation. It's that innate disposition of God to be gracious and kind toward all. And that's what separates God's goodness from man's goodness, from self-made goodness. Man-made gods have sometimes been creators. They have sometimes been lawgivers. More often than not, <clears throat> they have been judges. Of all the world's great religious systems, <coughs> excuse me, only Christianity and scriptures present a compassionate, loving 
good God taking the initiative to reach out to us in grace and forgiveness and faithfulness. Now, as we study the scriptures, we discover that God's goodness is seen in two realms. Number one, it's seen in the natural realm. Psalm 145, verse 9, 15, and 16 puts it this way. Notice, underline it, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. This entire psalm focuses on the goodness of God and the natural realm. Do you realize this? Every meal that we eat, every pleasure, every possession we enjoy comes from the gracious hand of a good God. Every breath of air, just stop and think about this. You breathe in and out. Every breath of air is a gift of his goodness. Every moment of good health, every traveling mercy, every daily protection and provision is an evidence of his goodness, his mercy. Every restful night's sleep is evidence of God's goodness to us. God's goodness is not only seen in the natural realm, it's also seen in the spiritual realm. And you have this here in Psalm 34, verses 8 and 10. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's say that together. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He repeats it a second time. Anytime there is a repetition in the word of God, our spiritual antenna ought to go up. Because God doesn't stutter. If he uses the same phrase, he is saying, hey, this is really important for you to understand. God is good. And those who seek the Lord are not going to lack anything. That's a promise, friends, that we can hang on to. It's all because of the goodness of God. And I want us to take a deeper dive this morning into the goodness of God which is greater than we could ever imagine. First of all, his greatness, his goodness is seen, number one, in his interventions in the course of human history. Now, you may want to turn your Bibles open to <clears throat> Exodus chapters 32, 33, and 34. I'm going to be referring to various passages in those chapters. In these particular chapters, we have the account of Moses returning from Mount Sinai after he had received the Ten Commandments a second time. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 32, we read about the disaster that occurred when Moses returns after receiving these commandments from the Lord and he comes down from the mountain and he sees that his people have built a golden calf and are dancing around it 
They have set up this calf and are worshiping this calf. They are committing idolatry. And Moses, as he sees this, after he's been in the presence of the Lord and he's received these Ten Commandments in anger, he throws the tablets down and they're broken into pieces. Now here in Exodus 33 and verse 13, notice, he prays. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. He's pleading on behalf of his people who have sinned, who have disregarded God's commands. And God responds to Moses' prayer in verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Number one, God's goodness is his presence. As we look at the text, we discover that Moses, after he sees the sin of the people, he desires greater assurance than ever. And he entreats God, saying, Lord, if you, you don't make yourself known to me, I don't want to go any further. He doesn't want to venture out any further into the land that's been promised to them. And in Exodus 34.10, he pleads with God to demonstrate his personal support. That is, he begs God to renew his covenantal relationship to Israel that was severely damaged when they built that golden calf and began worshiping it in an act of idolatry. And as Moses views the situation in his mind, it's only the very presence of God that would indicate a return of favor to his rebellious people. Only the presence of God would distinguish the children of Israel from all the other peoples of the earth. So when we think about God's goodness, first of all, it is his presence. That's what we need, my friends. We need the presence of the living God. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live any day unaware that God is with me. His goodness is with me. Number two, God's goodness is his mercy and compassion. Here in Exodus 33:17, again, God responds to the prayer of Moses saying, I will do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And God continues speaking to Moses. You see this in Exodus 33 and verse 19. And he says, I will cause all my goodness, there it is, underscored, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name. The Lord in your presence and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God in his sovereignty allows Moses to gaze on his goodness. Number three, God's goodness is his glory. You'll remember that when Moses returned from receiving the Ten Commandments a second time, his whole body was radiant and brilliant with light. In fact, when he comes down from the mountain, he is so 
engulfed with the glory, with the brightness of God, that our people are fearful of him. Fearful. They're afraid to come near to him. In Exodus 33:18, Moses had pled with God, please show me your glory. And God gives him a glimpse of his glory, which is the outshining of the brilliance of his being. And as he is in the presence of God, God literally clothes Moses with his glory. Number four, God's goodness is his steadfast love, his faithfulness and forgiveness. As we keep on reading through here, God further discloses additional evidences of his presence and goodness. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, notice what the text says. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, here it is, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I'm going to reserve comment on that last phrase until we get into the second main point. But right now I want you to focus on what the scripture says in 34.6, that God is abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now the context of all of this is very significant. Because in this context we see that Israel has sinned. They have disobeyed God. They have built a golden image. They're dancing around it. They're worshiping a false god. And yet in spite of the sin, in spite of their disobedience to God, God tells them that their God is abounding in love and faithfulness. He maintains love to thousands. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Remember, it was Aaron that had yielded to the pressure of the crowd. Remember, he was in charge of the people of God. But instead of holding true, he allowed this to all happen. In fact, the Bible tells us that because the people sinned against God, that more than 3,000 were struck dead because of their open idolatry and rebellion against God. And yet, even though God is angry with his people, Moses intercedes for them. And you see this in verses 31 and 34. He pleads with God not to blot out his people for their sin. And as you look at the scripture, as Moses prays, he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord and he's desirous that an angel, more than an angel, goes with him and the rest of the people into the promised land. He desires the presence of the living God. Verse 19, and God responds. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. 34, 6, and the Lord passed in front of Moses, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger 
and abounding in love and faithfulness. Aren't you glad our God is a God of the second chance? Where would any of us be if God didn't give us second chances? He gives us second chances because of his goodness. God allows his goodness to pass in front of Moses even though the people have sinned and even though they don't deserve even a smidgen of God's goodness, yet God makes himself known to Moses in this special way. In Jeremiah 33, the prophet speaks of the coming restoration of the fallen kingdoms of Judah and Israel and reminds the people how God established the heavens and the earth and he will once again bring health and healing to the nations. He would rebuild them as they first were. He will cleanse and pardon their iniquities and he will raise up a righteous branch to declare his glory. How can Jeremiah say those things? It is because of the goodness of God. Jeremiah 33 and verse 9 puts it this way. All the nations on the earth that hear of all the good things that I do for them. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. In verse 11 he says... For the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And then lastly, I want you to note here, his goodness is his patience in action. It's very interesting, as you read Psalm 107, we have four beautiful illustrations of God's goodness. And in each instance, he describes how the people cried out to the Lord and in their trouble and in their despair he hears them he delivers them out of their distresses and he concludes every one of those paragraphs with this repeated phrase let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love for his wonderful works to the children of men you see the steadfast love of the Lord is his goodness when we contemplate the gracious way God deals with us as his people, even when we sin and fail and disappoint him, we are led to marvel at the patience of God. Stop and think about how he has returned goodness to us when we don't deserve it or when we've taken it for granted. Think of the many times we have overlooked God's protection from the unknowns. Think of how he goes before us when we have difficult decisions to make. The way he prepares the way for us when we think there is no way possible. How desperately we as Christ followers need to imitate the patience of God, the goodness of God in our dealings with each other. Next time you are tempted to write another brother or sister off because they don't respond the way you believe they ought, 
Just stop and think of how patient the Lord has been with you, with us. God's goodness is extended even when we don't deserve it. My friends, never trifle with God's goodness. His goodness is an expression of his steadfast love that endures forever and ever. God is good. He is good all the time. Let's say that together. God is good. He is good all the time. Secondly, his goodness is seen in his initiative to forgive sin. You see this in Psalm 86 and verse 5. Notice, you are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Did you catch that? God, because he is good, is ready to forgive. He is willing to abundantly pardon and set us free from the power of sin. On the other hand, when God's forgiveness is rejected, God's goodness is withdrawn and we experience God's sternness or judgment. God's readiness to forgive sin cannot be isolated from his disposition to judge sin if his goodness is repeatedly spurned. In both the Old and the New Testament, God's goodness is joined together with the prospect of the withdrawal of that goodness if we do not respond to it or take it for granted. In the Old Testament, we've just looked at here in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, when God passed before Moses, he proclaimed, The Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here's the part that many times we forget. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, when we persist in our sins, when we persist in doing what we know is wrong and is contrary to the scriptures, we should not be surprised that God will withdraw his goodness from us. We can't trifle with God's goodness. Again, in the New Testament, Romans eleven twenty two, you have God's goodness and his sternness coming together. Consider there the kindness of the goodness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but God's kindness, that is his goodness to you, provided that you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will be cut off. And what Paul is referring to there is God's rejection of Israel, his decisive withdrawal of his goodness because they did not believe. And yet he did restore them because he is a good God. Well, what's the point? See, God is ever ready to forgive. But behind every display of God's goodness, faithfulness, and steadfast love stands the reality of his sternness or judgment if goodness is spurned 
or disregard. You see, if we don't allow the goodness of God to draw us to himself in steadfast love and faithfulness, we have only ourselves to blame when his goodness is withdrawn and when we become candidates for his sternness or judgment. Now, it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul speaks about this specifically in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. He points out to the self-righteous Jews that they thought they were much better than the Gentiles because they had been given the law and the prophets and all this. They had all these things that the Gentiles didn't have. But Paul says, you stand condemned even as the heathen because you have refused to acknowledge and respond to God's love as found in Jesus Christ. You can see that in the text, Romans 2, 4, and 5. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness or his goodness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness, his goodness, is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, God is good to us his goodness always has a purpose, and that is that our, His goodness moves us toward Him. But when we disregard His goodness, then we are candidates for His sternness. I want to share with you my heart this morning. One of the realities that alarms me about contemporary evangelicalism <clears throat> is that there is no longer any sense of brokenness over sin. To the contrary, we spiritualize sin. We justify our wrong actions by saying we've prayed over them. We actually ask God to bless outright sin to satisfy our own selfish and sinful desires. We feel that we have evolved so spiritually that we can openly disobey what God specifically has said in his word about how we're to live and how we're to relate to one another. We can disregard it all and still enjoy the benefits of the goodness of his unconditional love and forgiveness. <coughs> Let me give you an example. <coughs> Excuse me. Some time ago I attended a pastor's conference where Luis Palau was speaking to pastors about personal integrity in ministry. And he related an experience to all the pastors there about another pastor that he knew. He was a well-known evangelist <coughs> who had been used of the Lord to touch hundreds and thousands of people <coughs> Excuse me, with the gospel. And yet throughout most of his married life, he had been involved with other women. He was living a double life. And Lewis 
as a man of God, would go to him and say, you can't live this way, brother. <coughs> you can't live this way. You're, you're, you're disobeying the word of God. You're destroying your marriage. But at no time did that evangelist ever acknowledge his sin. There was no brokenness, no remorse. The, the idea was, well, God will forgive. He's, he, he has all this good. He's just going to overlook all this. He's going to overlook my sin, my transgression. Friends, that evangelist and all that mimic him, his unbroken spirit, are trifling with the goodness of God. God is good. God is holy. But sin in any form is obnoxious and offensive to him. Be it an unchristlike attitude, gossip, slander, you name it, or uncontrollable lust, it's all wrong. And we can't experience the blessing of God if we continue on in those ways. See, the God of the Bible is concerned about the way his creation lives. His goodness does not preclude his holy hatred of sin. In fact, if God did not punish perpetual sin and wrongdoing, he would cease to be good. And that is something God can never do. He can never contradict who he is. God's goodness is foundational to repentance and faith in Christ. God's goodness pursues after us. And even when we have sinned, as the great evangelist George Whitfield put it, God sometimes puts stones in our bed to awaken us from spiritual slumber and empower us to be aware of his goodness all around us. You see, once we are aware of the goodness of God, we will want to stay as close to him as we possibly can. We will not trifle with his goodness. We will not ignore his his nudges, that he's always nudging us toward himself. Will not to tolerate any kind of disobedience to his word. And we will give him our full allegiance and strive to live not according to our standards that are flawed, but according to his. And then lastly, notice, God's goodness is seen in his instructions for victorious Christian living. And you see this primarily in Psalm 119, verses 65 to 72. In verse 65, the psalmist says, Do good to your servant according to your word, O Lord. 66 and 68, Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I believe your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went away, but now I obey your word you are good, and what you do is good. Underline that. Teach me your decrees. 
David is reflecting upon a time of severe trial and affliction. He is being beat up by his enemies. He is being slandered. He is being tested to the nth degree. He's being beaten down by the system. And people are misrepresenting him. And instead of being detoured of defending himself and wasting vital energy, vindicating himself and setting the record straight, he focused on the goodness of God. And notice he found his accusers to be devoid of any spiritual capacity or control over him. And because his focus is on God's goodness, he can affirm amidst adversity with my whole heart, verse 69, With my whole heart, I keep your precepts. And in verse 70, I delight in your law. What a difference it makes when our focus is upon God and his goodness. No matter what the world throws at us, instead of despairing, instead of complaining, David found renewed strength, notice in verse 70, by delighting in God's word. When God's goodness and affliction meet, we learn some valuable lessons about God. Number one, we learn to believe God's commands. Notice verse 66, God's commands are good judgment and knowledge. That phrase, good judgment, means to discern between good and evil. One of the the greatest needs that the contemporary church needs today, more than anything else, is people with discernment. But discernment only comes when we are captivated by the goodness of God. Number two. He not only believes God's commandments, but he determines to keep and obey God's commands. He understands that the word of God is a contract between God and man. And he understands that when he obeys God, he flourishes. When he disobeys God, he flounders. Number three, he learns to crave God's teachings to crave it, to have an unsatiable appetite for the Word of God. Number four, in verse 69, he learns to internalize God's precepts, to make the Word of God part and parcel of his very life. Number five, verse 70, to delight in the law of God. To delight in the Lord is to taste, to taste the word. And as you keep on reading in this psalm, the word of God is sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. It's fabulous. You see, there is something about God's goodness that helps us to learn how we are to be enveloped with God's truth. Number six, verse 71, he learns to grow deeper in God's statutes. He, he has a deepening appetite for God. 
And number seven, verse 72, he values God's word above money. You see, he says God's word is more precious than gold and silver that fluctuate and can't be depended upon. As I have studied this this week, I've, I've been brought to my knees. <clears throat> I don't think I've really, and I'm still trying to grasp the magnitude of God's goodness. It's so marvelous. It's so overwhelming. But his goodness is rooted in his word. And if we want to experience the goodness of God, we must become students of this book. The psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against you. Number two, God's goodness enables us to rise above the challenges of life. There is no affliction that we face that is too big for the goodness of our God. His word, our focus. We experience the blessing and the power of the living God as never before. That was true in the life of Moses. That was true in the life of the psalmist. And it can be true in each of our lives if we will respond and grow deeper in our love for God and his incredible goodness. Father in heaven, We do love you. I'm overwhelmed at your goodness. I look back over my life and there's been many times when I have failed. I have tried to do things in my own energy only to fall flat on my face. I've tried to do things on my own many times. And in those moments, I have trifled with your goodness. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help every single one of us to leave here determined to walk in the light of the goodness of our God, the God of the second chance, the God who doesn't hold things over our head, the God who is with us, and we can count on his presence every single day. We love you, Lord. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray.